This is Bonjour Chai, the None is Not Enough edition. I'm Avi Fongold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Montreal and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we explore the future of Jewish philanthropy, whether young Jews no longer give and what can be done, and we hear a tribute to Irving Abella from David Kaufman. Alana, David, do you guys give money? How do you give money? Like, what's, what's your and your cohort's relationship to tzedakah, to charitable giving, any of that? Well, I would assume that because David and I are both struggling actors, that we are possibly too poor to afford to give money when we are scraping by ourselves. But I will say that growing up, Sadaka was a very important value in both in my home and in my education. And I remember having many, many Sadaka boxes in my room, and we would go and donate them, whether it was to JNF or Federation or various causes. And in elementary school, a bunch of friends and I raised money on our own. We made these bookmarks, and I think it was to give money to, I don't know if it was to plant trees or something to do with Israel, but we we laminated these bookmarks and wrote a poem and had this little picture and sold them to kids in our class and then sent a whole bunch of money off. So I, I feel like it was something that, you know, as a kid, uh, when I didn't have any concept of actual finances, um, definitely was a big part of, of my upbringing, and I would like to be able to donate one day but right now it's just not a reality for me and I am in in a lower bracket of income so you know people who actually make a normal amount of money I don't know what their excuse is because I know that our generation makes less money than our predecessors but they still make more money than me that is all very true but we are dealing with like it a lot of boomers had more money and I think our generation is struggling right now whether it be inflation or house costs or anything like that and then to ask to give even more I think is a big reach. It's a big ask. I think the only thing that I really donate to is my synagogue for its annual contribution. And that is incredibly expensive. That takes a huge chunk of change every year where I want to be a member. I want to participate in these in these activities and this, this uh, organization. But after that, I'm strapped for cash. And I think Another big issue for me is I don't know where this money always goes. Every year when I was growing up, you know, the Federation would call my house and sort of say, are you ready to donate? Are you ready to donate? When I was interested, I want to know, like, where does the money go? How much is being spent locally in my community? How much is being sent abroad to Israel? What organizations are they promoting? I could never get a straight answer from them. They sort of says, trust us with your money and then we'll take care of the rest. And I just don't think it's good enough for people of our generation. We want to see quantifiable results to know where our money is being spent. I have to follow up with the actual name of the organization, but I know uh, of one. I don't. I don't think it's a Jewish organization, but it is a philanthropic one. Where maybe you know, Avi, um, it finds all the organizations where you actually know where the money's going to, and oh, it will. You mean make like the charity watchdog that we had on a while ago? There you go. It could be that. Where <laughs> um, you? Yeah. But, but it's an actual organization where you can send them the money and then they delegate oh, it. So well, it's, that's, not, it's something else. Yeah, but in that sense, that's no different than Federation saying, like, hey, give us the money and we give to Jewish causes and that's sure. it. Right. I think the, the issue that David's talking about is that there's a lot of organizations for which there's a lack of transparency and that younger Jews want uh, more transparency and want yeah. more control over what's going on. And that's not necessarily, um, you know, a historically... Um, in a way in which organizations have always worked. And I can tell you right now, I mean, there is a downside to that in that sometimes um, donors are not the best people 
to advise how, you know, charities should be using their money. Um, sometimes they are not professionals in the field. Uh, Voulet, who, is, who, has, who has this amazing blog called Nonprofit AF, um, which is really like gets into what's going on in that in that world, is is always quick to point out that uh, this happens with boards. This happens with don't with major donors who say, "I want you to give in this way," and the executive directors and the workers in whatever nonprofits uh, often are way better equipped to say, "Well, that's not a good thing," but then they have to turn down a six or sometimes seven figure donation because they want uh, th- that person, uh, you know, wants to wants it to give in a certain way, and and then they're, they're, their hands are tied because they want they need that donation, and so they end up doing it. Um, and so there is a downside to that transparency. Um, what I would advocate is at least transparency, but not necessarily um, the personal involvement, right, of the donors uh, for that to happen, right? To go and say, this is what we're doing. You have a right to know what we're doing, but you don't necessarily have the right to, to tell us what to do and how to do it. But I will argue that when people say, oh, young people don't don't donate, you know, they're just spending it on lattes all the time and they're wasting their money. I would say lo- young people want to donate. They just want to donate more locally and they want to donate where they can actually see something. Many young people stepped up when um, the Ukraine war started. They crowdsourced money can happen like that in an instant when it's on social media and people do want to feel like they are uh, part of a community. They just need to see it more. I, I think this brings up a larger issue, which we've talked about in the show in the past about institutions, because I think a lot of people associate chari- like Jewish charity and giving with those like shiny institutions like we once talked about. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's part of it. I really like the article that um, Forbes put out about uh, this particular issue with youth and what are the different trends that are getting people to donate. And I resonated with the one point they brought up about needing to feel inspired. And I do think that is a big part of it, knowing where the money goes to and wanting to feel like you're actually inspired. And maybe people of my generation are just not inspired by what previous generations were. Yeah, I can't, I couldn't possibly agree more. I think that if, if, uh, and maybe we'll talk about this with the guests, but um, I think that if young Jewish donors aren't giving to Jewish organizations, it's because those Jewish organizations are not doing things that speak to them as a group. Forget about being inspired. They're just, this is not relevant to me. Um, and I want to give to something that's relevant. And there's just no place. Um, I talk about this a lot. Um, and I find it's a huge problem within the community that the legacy organizations are sucking up a huge amount of the money um, because they're around. And we've been giving, people have been giving to them for decades. And why should we stop giving to them? They're still doing sort of okay work, which doesn't give a lot of money left in the pool for upstart for young um, startup Jewish organizations to actually get some funding to get the ball rolling. There's a, there's a term for it called the Methuselah problem, right? Where the, the organization hasn't died yet, and so you have to support them. Um, but that takes away funds from new things, and there's not a lot of new organizations um, coming into the community um, that are you know in a position to go and say, "Give us some money," um, and. You know, for especially for those organizations, because I, I know one of the other things that happens with young people is that they think that their twenty dollars doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but I can tell you that for a young upstart organization, if if five hundred people, five hundred young people gave twenty dollars, right, that's something, right? That's a small part time salary for somebody to be able to go and do more and to find grants and to mm-hmm. uh, to to roll the ball. I have my own organization. I have the Jewish Living Lab. Um, we accept charitable donations, um, but it's hard to really find the people um, who aren't saying, "Well, we have all these." other organizations that we give to um, and what are you doing that's different and I'm like I'm clearly doing something that's different I'm doing something that speaks to a new generation but they're not seeing it because it's not speaking to them and their 
looking for metrics that are harder to quantify um, right. in, in, you know, based on what we're doing. Um, Look, it's uh, it, it's a problem that's I think not necessarily going to go away. I think, uh, but I think just as much of the problem is that um, the previous generation wasn't necessarily inculcating this sense of philanthropy um, to you know to others. I see in the in the religious community, for example, where there are people that are very very poor, um, but they still have this sense of giving charity. And you have people who have very little money, but will still give you know money to an organization because they understand the concept of always transferring. You know, the, tzedakah really is a really a real trickle down form of economics, which in theory should work a lot better than. contemporary trickle-down economics, which doesn't work, um, but people give. We, you know, we're not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but we make sure we find the organizations. We make sure that our children know um, that this is part of the culture is that we give and that we give because of these organizations and we tell them what are organizations that you guys care about that we should be giving to, that we should be thinking about. Um, And the piece that I think uh, you guys aren't talking about, and I'm curious your thoughts, is I think young people volunteer a lot. I was going to bring that up. Ooh, yes. Tell us about volunteering. Well, I think volunteering is a great option for people who can't afford to actually financially donate. Um, and there's everyone always needs volunteers. Sometimes they don't even advertise it and you can just ring up an organization and ask them if they need help. Mm-hmm. And it's a great way to give back. And I've, you know, I've done it, um, whether it's in the community or outside of the community for, you know, my, my industry. Um, I volunteer at many theaters in town. It kind of goes mm-hmm. across the board. You can do it for anything that you are passionate about. Yeah. The, the downside to that is that the uh, volunteering doesn't replace everything. And and even organizations that need a lot of volunteers still need a lot of money. And so people yeah. who give a lot of time end up saying, well, I've given up my time and they don't have the ability or, or they don't think to say, well, I, I still need to give $50 because that organization still needs, you know, infrastructure, still needs some people to work full time and, and make that yeah, happen. So you need a bit of both. Okay. Well, um, young people give because it's important because it's part of our culture. Um, old people still give. Give the money to your generations that are in the future so that they can go and uh, use the money uh, for donations. Uh, And without further ado, let's go hear from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Montreal, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in watches and custom-designed jewelry along with a curated selection of designer jewelry. Visit us online or in person and Eric Goldberg will help make your jewelry dreams come true. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Montreal listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. On Tuesday, the uh, CJN Daily ran a story with two of the Canadian leads on a new project called the Jewish Future Pledge. Uh, the pledge asks people to leave 50% of their estate to Jewish and Israeli causes. And we had some questions about the program specifically, about what this and other larger trends say about the future of giving in the Jewish community. With us to speak about the pledge is Mark Silberman, who is the chair of the Jewish Future Pledge. Mark, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Yeah, happy to be here. I'm noticing a trend uh, between the Jewish Future Pledge and uh, the Life and Legacy uh program that is being run by the Grinspoon Foundation. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it or not, where people yeah, are very um, familiar. giving uh, of their estates. First of all, so what is the difference between your program, for example, and the Life and Legacy program, which also has uh, started to establish itself in Canada? Well, the uh, it's actually, they're actually fully integrated, believe it or not. And so uh, if you take a look at the umbrella of the Jewish Future Pledge, 
it's all about uh, estate planning. And so when you pass on whatever you decide to leave as a portion of your estate to charity, the Jewish Future Pledge is asking that you earmark 50% for you know, Jewish causes you know, here and in Israel. And so the integration of uh, life and legacy is that if somebody either before they have passed on or after they passed on would make a, a designated legacy gift to a Jewish cause, that would be part or uh, integrated into their 50% in theory, um, uh, their pledge to uh, respect the Jewish future pledge. And so we, we have a uh, very good partnership with Life and Legacy in a lot, not only in uh, Canada, but also in uh, North America. So um, if I could start with a bit of a harder pointed question as well, then. Um, to me, the, the bigger question that I had was that this doesn't seem like an issue for the next generation to sort of convince the next generation to give, but it sounds like the last attempt for Jewish organizations to get money from a certain generation before they pass on and their children aren't interested in giving anymore. Is that the case? I mean, it, it, well, uh, you know, if you're peeling away the onion, yes, there's two cases here. The first case is there's a lot of wealth capacity uh, already accumulated in the Jewish world, and we're very concerned about where that wealth's going to go and how the next generation is going to use it. And so, yes, there's, you know, trillions of dollars and billions of dollars that are going to go work their way down to the next generation. And then, of course, the question really is, what is the next generation going to do with that money? And so I, I always have a, 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 per, a quick, I have a quick personal story in my own family, like prior to not signing the Jewish Future Pledge, you know, you know we, we had no clue about what the children might be doing. And so the, the, the emergency really, and this isn't an emergency situation because you have people with wealth or just people in general that are passing on with no wealth or just slightly accumulated wealth that have uh, money and donor advice funds or foundations, et cetera. And it's not earmarked uh, for Jewish causes. And so we, we know from studies, we all know this, that uh, the next generation is not so inclined to give Jewishly yet, uh, in, in, in certainly the ways of their parents or grandparents. And why do you think that is? Why is the younger Jewish generation not so willing to step up to the plate and give to these Jewish institutions? Well, I didn't say they, they wouldn't do it. I just said it's, it may not be on their, their radar like it's on my generation's radar. Uh, it's even not on the radar of my four children at age from 32 to, to 45. It's not necessarily on their radar. You know, that next generation is slightly or like uh, remotely distracted from philanthropy in general and from Jewish philanthropy. And so uh, the issue for us is how do we bring in that next generation? How do we get them to see the vision of supporting Jewish organizations that are going to need our support in the future? Now, we also understand that they may not support Jewish organizations, the traditional legacy organizations. They may support new organizations or, or other organizations that they feel are viable. Also, they're very interested in social action causes and human services organizations. And so... Uh, I give you an example that uh, one of my uh, children brought to the family. Uh, they wanted to make a gift to um, the Jewish Fertility Foundation. And this was really all about fertility. It, it, it was just a Jewish umbrella. And then the next thing they came down the hall for is they were very interested in homelessness. Even though my wife and I are uh, substantial philanthropists in the Atlanta community and have been so supporting a wide range of Jewish causes in Atlanta, which they are aware of, 
they they still are not at the table saying this is so important. This is so important. We should continue on. Now, remember, the, the pledge is non-transactional. We're still alive. It's going to take place when we pass on. And there may be some money that it will appear in a donor advice fund and that our family is going to have to get together and how to figure it out. And they're also going to have to figure out how to honor our minimum wish of 50% to go to Jewish causes. So I think the sense of urgency is to educate the next generation on why philanthropy is so important and how meaningful it can be with a sort of an umbrella of Jewish and non-Jewish causes. So how do do we do that? What are the first steps that uh, an organization like yours could take or anyone on the street that wants to get their children or grandchildren excited about giving? Well, I, I think that the first thing you do is you sign the pledge because that makes a sort of a moral commitment. Then we keep saying all the time, you get your children together and you tell them that you signed the pledge and and why you signed the pledge and, uh, you know, sort of starts the education, starts the education process. You know, the Jewish Future Pledge has a a long term horizon because the the sort of this wealth transfer that's going to take place is going to take place over the next 20 to 25 years. And so it, it, it has a more downstream effect on actually I have uh, six grandchildren age uh, three to 13. So if you look out 5, 10, 15, 20 years, they also could be at the table giving away money at some point in time based on how the money is structured. And so, um, you know, we don't necessarily have the solution about how to get it started, although we're partnered with a number of different agencies through North America, et cetera, and we're depending on them for next-gen education. You know, a lot of a lot of people, I think, uh, in Toronto, uh, they have a next gen uh, education program where they'll bring in young people and uh, educate them on uh, philanthropy. And the other thing is we also have and I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with this. We also have the Jewish Youth Pledge, which starts at age 13 and rolls up to age 23. And so that's a way of, of making people more cognizant of uh, philanthropy and what their role in the Jewish world potentially could be. For those who are listening who might not know about the Youth Pledge, can you tell our listeners a bit more about what that looks like and how it works? Well, the Youth Pledge is really designed in partnership with uh, the many broad-spectrum youth organizations that are across uh, uh, North America, in, in including uh, teen organizations, day schools, youth groups. Uh, we're also partnered with uh, uh, Israel Trip uh, providers, you know, like Birthright or Route One that that take even the summer camp programs that take uh, kids to Israel. And it's basically sort of a, a small 15 or 30 minute educational program that talks about philanthropy, talks about Tikkun Olam, and then asks them to sign the youth pledge, which is really sort of um, uh, they're really sort of pledging that they're going to uh, make a serious effort to engage in Jewish life uh, and uh, engage in the understanding and the history uh, of Israel. Uh, so it's not like uh, the the big boy pledge, which actually says, you know, there, there may be money involved and there may be wealth transfer, et cetera. And so uh, the other thing is the youth pledge has a little a great technology piece uh, and the technology piece uh, has a time capsule. And the time capsule, what happens is when the young person signs, they sign online. And when they sign online, they get to write in the time capsule uh, a brief uh, one-page paragraph as to why they're signing and why it's important. And then the technology kicks in, saves it, and then will automatically email them that information every five years to update uh, why they signed the pledge and what were the circumstances and who the partner was 
when they signed the pledge. So uh, to give you an idea, just in, in, in scope, we probably have about seven or 8,000 big boy pledges and we have about seven or 8,000 youth pledges already. Now, you, you did mention, you know, the youth is generally less inclined to give donations. And I think I can speak for myself as someone who is a bit younger is, I don't know where my money is going to end up going. I, I, I would like to know sort of the breakdown of where my dollar donation ends up. And I'm wondering if there is this in the youth donation pledge where we know where it's maybe not going to be spent on an elaborate gala of 500 people where they invite celebrities and they turn it into like a, a wine and dine night. Is there anything set up with your organization that if I do want to donate and if I do eventually want to pledge my money, that we know where this money is going to be spent dollar for dollar? The answer to that, uh, David, is no, because we're not in the business, uh, the youth pledge and the uh, the big boy pledge, as we like to call it, are not in the business of taking the money, guiding the money, and telling you where it's going to go ultimately. That's a decision. That's part of the learning lesson about philanthropy and, and giving that we need to teach our children and grandchildren to be aware of how your money could be spent, how to ask those proper and correct questions You know, with the individual nonprofit organization, no matter whether it's Jewish or non-Jewish. The same set of questions are appropriate to uh, all philanthropy. Yeah, but going, so so I'm curious, going to the big boy pledge, as you like to call it, or the big girl pledge or the big person pledge, um, the the nature of it seems to be that you're giving, you're pledging 50% of it to specific organizations, right? To go and say, I'd like this library or no, that museum. No, that's not so, correct. So then explain it a little further because I guess I'm a little confused. <laughs> no, I think I think that 50%, let, let's have a quick example. If, if somebody passes away and they leave a, uh, 50,000 to charity, right? We are assuming that most of the 50,000, some will be targeted legacy gifts, but most of it will be unrestricted. See, the money will be sitting someplace mm -hmm. either a donor advice fund or a bank, et cetera. And then that person, whoever uh, the family is, will have to get together and figure out how to give that money away. Now, the, uh, the Jewish nonprofits, and so in the last five to 10 years have done a, you know, a partnership with Life and Legacy, but even if you're not a Life and Legacy partner, have done a very good job of trying to work with donors to have them make targeted legacy gifts to those institutions. So I imagine that will only get stronger, right, as we go into the future. But I, I still feel like there's going to be a very, very large amount of unrestricted dollars that are going to be floating around that are not designated yet. I really would hope so because, and I've been involved with Life and Legacy uh, because I sit on a board uh, of organizations here and I have my own non nonprofit here in Montreal. And I sit here and I think to myself, um, when somebody gives a legacy gift, they're essentially saying that this organization, right, should exist 30, 40 years into the future without knowing what the future in 30 and 40 years looks like and without saying to the next generation um, what is relevant to you and what is important to you. And that's why I think that the unrestricted nature of a gift um, is so much more important and the ability to get the next generation to actually do the actual donating rather than sort of saying, here's a legacy gift. Here is something that you uh, that I have thought is very important and I'm going to give it away even after I've passed away. I'm going to keep that legacy going. And sometimes that's very important. Um, but we never really know how important those things are until the future happens. Well, I... I I agree. And, and, you know, where young people are not given the opportunity to go and make these decisions for that, I feel like that's where a large part of the youth not wanting to give is because they feel helpless. They they have this sense of like, well, we don't know where uh, we don't have any money to give. We're we're just taking our parents money and 
giving it to wherever my parent wanted it. And, and we need to, you know, empower a, ne- a new generation to take their wealth and to say, this is what I care about and this is what I believe in. Well, you, you're one of the great salesmen for the Jewish Future Pledge. Okay, well, sign me up. <laughs> I think the point, the point is, if you, take a, if, you ta- if you take a look at my own philanthropy, my wife and I have made some uh, legacy gifts to institutions that we are very familiar with that we want to carry on. And I imagine, uh, you have to remember, I'm still alive, and I'm pro- I probably hope to be alive for quite a while longer. And that may change when the children come to the table in a full way and saying, listen, why, why are you so giving so much money when you pass on to camping? You know, why isn't something else more important to you and stuff like that? So, you know, I'm a big, we're a big camp family. So I want to continue to support the camps and stuff like that. But I may, I may uh, adjust my gift. I might increase my gift. But certainly... Um, I will take it under advice when the children are sort of uh, at the table in some sort of level of experience. Uh, And so this is why it's so important to get started now. You know, we know that uh, younger people today uh, perhaps are interested in um, lots of different things other than perhaps Jewish causes. Uh, Although we we see in the nonprofit world a big, um, there was a big, uh, you know, for supporting Ukraine, uh, there was a big movement among young people that were going online and supporting, you know, 18 to $36, maybe their first time donating to sort of like the federation system that was sort of coordinating or some of the human service organizations that were coordinating online gifts for that support and continue on. You can see there's a lot of new donors entering into the system, uh, young people, because when they fill it out, you, 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 you know, we have a way of uh, tracking, you know, what age they are, et cetera. And so, you know, that's that's also enlightening, but it's it's a long term play. It's not a short term. play. Well, Ms. Uh, Mark Silverman, thank you uh, for joining us. And uh, to learn more about the Jewish Future Pledge, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to that and to the Canadian uh, version of it as well. Yeah, happy to help. One of the organizations that is actively seeking to work on the future of philanthropy is Honeycomb. Honeycomb creates education and resources for growing Jewish philanthropy among Jewish youth. And we are joined today by Danielle Siegel, the program director for Honeycomb. Danielle, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to all of you. Danielle, can you uh, start by telling us what is the problem for which Honeycomb seeks a solution to? Yeah, so Honeycomb's reason for existence is really to help Uh, young people um, start on their journey of philanthropy. Um, And we work with professionals and communities and host organizations in order to make the most wonderful Jewish youth philanthropy programs. Um, We also have a lot of resources and curriculum around it. So what's so important to us is really getting that deep Jewish content um, for the um, young people and the teens to grapple with so that they can then understand philanthropy and really bring their own Jewish identity into that giving process. Um, And we're really inspiring a lifelong passion for giving. And we see that as starting um, really from a very young age. So we really want to demystify philanthropy. We want to make sure it's accessible for everyone. Um, and that teens can get a really valuable experience um, from doing this kind of Jewish giving. And what are some of the specifics that you are doing to get the young people involved and excited about philanthropy? So a lot of what we do, um, as far as our curriculum and our resources, is really tailored for young people. Um, So it's really making everything very accessible. Um, It really brings a lot of that Jewish content um, to life in a modern way. Um, 
and they are looking at real issues. This is kind of like a real world program. Um, the real world affects the program and the program affects the real world because they are actually granting um, real money. The teens are really inspired to be responsible and that is a key thing, um, that there is an end goal and the young people are really making a difference in the world. So it's a very appealing program um, for the young people um, because it is based within the real world. And also a lot of what we do is we train communities to do this. So we give the communities um, the tools to make the best programs possible. We do full trainings um, so that they can understand um, the curriculum and the trajectory um, in order to make this very, um, uh, very appealing and very meaningful. Um, and I think that is a really key piece of this. Um, and a lot of our resources can also be used by families. We know that families use it too for family philanthropy to inspire giving within families. Um, so there's a lot of really great tools that can be used um, in order to um, make the giving come to life and make it really accessible. So I just wanted to do a bit of a, a fact check here, and I don't know if you have any giving as much. So do you feel that's untrue? I mean, I think the landscape of giving is changing and altering. Um, and whether young people, you know, whatever we count as young people, we work generally with 18s and under, and it's hard to capture some of that data, especially if you are putting coins in a Sedaka box. That's very hard for us to track. Uh, but what we can track is um, within our network, um, we know approximately um, how much the teens are giving away each year as part of their collective grant-making experiences within their programs. And we know that that number is has been steadily increasing um, over the years. And the number of relationships that the teens are building um, and the different focuses of where they're giving is changing and altering every year. Um, and we know from our work with the communities um, that the, 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 the learning is getting deeper and better the more that the field grows and grows. So we're seeing really great shifts as far as the, um, as far as the field. Um, and I mean, I'm really excited to be on a Canadian podcast because we have um, some great programs in Canada. Um, we have one connected to the UJA Federation of Greater Toronto. We also have one in the Jewish Federation of Winnipeg. Um, so we've seen programs grow and more and different programs um, over the last few years, um, which has been really gratifying um, to see. I want to hear more about what you just touched upon, that the, re the uh, organizations that young people want to donate to are changing, because that's something that the three of us uh, all seem to agree on, that people in you know the younger generations they want to feel inspired they want to feel like it's relevant to them so what are some examples of where you see young people donating to these days yeah so uh, within our programs um, anecdotally what we're seeing at the moment is um, we're seeing a focus on mental health and giving to he mental health related charities um, largely in part to covid and the effect that covid had on young people's mental health so we're seeing the young people um, wrestle with those subjects um, a lot more and giving to mental health leaning charities. Um, and we actually developed a, a mental health giving guide um, through Honeycomb, uh, which we know um, a lot of our programs are using. Um, we're also seeing more of a focus on um, uh, organizations that uh, work with anti-Semitism. 
um, and, and, and combating anti-Semitism. And we've seen that over, again, anecdotally over the last uh, year or so, we've seen an increase there. Um, also, um, young people are interested in vir environmental causes as well um, and focusing on that too. Um, and we're going to be creating new resources around the environment to, um, to meet that need. Um, and we also created an LGBTQ giving guide, which we know is being used more by programs as well. So those are just some of the trends that we've been noticing over the last year or two. One thing as well, a lot of times when there's talk of Jewish philanthropy, there is right in the same sentence, the you know, supporting the state of Israel. And I just wonder with younger Jews now who may have less of an affiliation with the state or certain pathways where the money is going, do you feel maybe that's a cause, that's a reason that younger Jews feel less inclined to donate to the big institutions, to the big philanthropic events? Um, it really depends on the program. Some of our programs really do have a local focus, so they only give locally, and others have a global focus and give all over. Um, some of our programs even specify that they do give to Israel, and they make that conscious decision to give to Israel. And sometimes the teams come to that um, just as a group. They make all their decisions through consensus. So what is also great about the programs and the teams working together is um, they make those decisions um, together through talking and having conversations um, and they all have to come to their decisions together through consensus. So some of them do decide um, to give to Israel um, as well. And what's also interesting is we have programs in Israel as well. So those programs look a little different. They're based in Israel, um, but we even have a few of our programs who twin with programs over in Israel um, and do a giving experience together. So some of the, the teens in North America get to have that experience with teens in Israel. So it's going to look a little bit different depending on the program, um, but some of them do have that, um, that pull to give to Israel as well. Um, and it really depends on the program um, as far as whether they are giving um, locally to non-Jewish organizations or locally to smaller Jewish organizations or bigger ones. Um, a key part of our work is whether they're giving to a Jewish organization or not. They are learning deeply about the Jewish content, the Jewish impetus, their own Jewish identity in that giving. And that Jewish identity propels them to give. So even if the end recipient is not a Jewish organization, um, there is deep, rich Jewish content, content going through that whole process. Um, having said that, a lot of our programs do give to Jewish organizations as well and make that decision to do so. So um, one of the things that I noticed that is absent from a lot of those trends that you just mentioned is um, uh, anything that's specifically um, Jewishly and Jewishly spiritual, right? There's a lot of organizations that are Jewish around LGBT issues, around Jewish around environmental issues, Jewish around any of these um, other topics, which are generally global concerns that are also there. Um, but what does that say for the future of Jewish spiritual communities, about synagogues, about other organizations that are purely there for, um, for lack of a better way of saying it, bin Adam la makom, right, between uh, a person and God, as opposed to bin Adam la chavero, which are, you know, social uh, justice or or social service organizations, does that mean that younger people are not as interested in giving to those places? Does that mean that, that we have to, uh, th those organizations are not speaking to young people um, in a way that is compelling to them? What's happening around that sphere? Mm. So our programs um, are generally hosted in lots of different types of organization. 
So sometimes they're hosted at federations or at Jewish day schools or at synagogues. For sure. But that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking more. I'm asking more that young people want, don't seem to want to give to synagogues. Young people aren't necessarily giving to um, things that's not necessarily speaking to them. Does that mean that do they eventually evolve into that? Does that mean that spiritual communities are not speaking to these young people in a way that's compelling to them? I mean, I know, again, I know anecdotally from the programs that I've worked with that um, some of those collective giving programs, those Jewish youth philanthropy programs, they're in recipients sometimes are synagogues or camps. Um, or um, services that are run out of synagogues. Um, it really depends what captures the imagination of the particular teens, and they make a mission statement every year, um, the teens who are part of this like collective giving model. Um, so they might decide that they, they, their end point is, yes, they actually do give to after, Jewish after-school programs, or they give to synagogues. I know um, a good number who do give to camps as well. Um, as their end recipient. So whether that is increasing or decreasing over the last few years, um, I'm not sure, but I do know that that giving does does happen um, depending on the the mission of uh, the, the youth group. Um, for instance, if their mission is Jewish education, um, then they're likely to give to maybe um, a synagogue or spiritual um spiritual endeavors um or camps uh, jewish camps with like a strong uh, jewish identity there. and one of the other things that i keep hearing um within the jewish nonprofit world or jewish community uh, one of the reasons why young people don't give is because so much has been given to them library experience which really di- directly speaks to people within your um code for free that they don't understand the concept of what the cost is whether it's the birthright experience or the pj cohort um what what does one make of that when you're seeing it from the other side? Is there truth to that? Do young people not see it or do they uh, see that it does cost money and then they end up uh, still donating or, or being philanthropists in that world? Well, I think that is one of the really great things about being involved in a philanthropy program from a young age is you really understand what it takes to run a nonprofit. Um, you understand how a budget works. That is something that the, the teens learn through. Um, they look at a nonprofit and they see what is needed, that things don't come for free, um, that even if you come and you volunteer and you're making sandwiches for the homeless, um, some money needs to be put aside to make the electricity to make that happen, or someone has to um, pay a volunteer coordinator in order to get the volunteers in in order to give their time for free. Um, so that is a um, really key piece of our curriculum is really digging and seeing what does it take to be philanthropic and that volunteering and uh, philanthropy, they go hand in hand. There is that kind of point in the middle of the Venn diagram um, and that is where philanthropy education meets and it's, and it's really clear to see for those young people, especially um, if they're also involved in philanthropy, that they can see what it means to do hands-on volunteering um, why it's important to give monetarily as well. And that overlap in the middle is really that key piece. So super quickly, uh, before we head out, I was just curious if there are any organizations that kind of um, are aimed at the people who are in between. Like, I'm too old to have grown up with Honeycomb in Canada. Um, but if I wanted to learn more in the way that you are educating people, where could I go? Is there any resources that exist? Yeah, absolutely. There are some giving there are some giving circle resources. Um, if um, if you're kind of interested in um, getting involved at a slightly older age, um, 
our work is mainly with um, with young people and the people educating those young people, um, but our resources are very flexible. We do know people who use our curriculum as references because it, they are so uh, diverse and thorough in the way that they address philanthropy. But yes, absolutely, there are um, organizations um, who help with giving circles and, and self-led giving experiences. And um, there is also um, the Jewish Funders Network, um, who um, also works with um, organizations and individuals um, who um, are interested in learning more about philanthropy and um, uh, learning um, how to be kind of better, better philanthropists. Danielle Siegel is the program director for Honeycomb, which creates educational resources. And uh, we hope to speak to you again. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So I'd like to welcome back uh, David Kaufman to our show. David, you, I think, are our first three-time guest. Uh, you get a gold star. Hey. So um, while I am familiar with the phrase, none is too many, I'm not familiar with the man who helped launch this expression into the Canadian Jewish lexicon and turned it into the title of a bestseller that he helped co-author. Can you tell me who Irving Abella was? Well, I, I didn't know my predecessor very well personally, um, but let me just say first that he certainly deserves every ounce of the, the tribute coming out these last few days. He was a really good historian, uh, a really good community leader, and a really good man. Uh, so we've lost a giant in our community with his passing. Uh, he was a professor of history uh, in the uh, York University's history department um, and held many titles uh, leading many both Jewish and kind of Canadian intellectual, academic, historical organizations. I found it really interesting reading up on him that he discovered that the phrase none is too many was not actually said by the prime minister, but by some unidentified bureaucrat. Is there any other uh, finding of his that was eye-opening in that way? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the story actually goes the other way around. It's that the fact that these guys wrote this book with this title and the phrase became a commonplace, you know, sort of slogan for Jews to think about what happened during World War II. That it was only then that it was misattributed uh, to the prime minister. So it wasn't that he discovered that he was. Oh, yeah, that's so it, interesting. It, it, the, the phrase at all only has purchase, and people thought about it because they wrote this book about it. Um, now it's interesting that if if there's only one book. Uh, about Canadian Jewish life on most Canadian Jewish bookshelves. It's very likely to be this book, Itchia Bella and Hesh Tropers, None is Too Many. Um, I was helping clear out um, the home of my wife's recently descended Bobby Frieda Traub uh, on Monday, the day before Professor Abella's funeral. She was the young mother uh, who hid with my infant father-in-law and a Sefer Torah and a few other family members in a Polish farm through the war and died about a month ago at 101. And one of the th three books, literally three books on her bookshelf uh, of her home was, um, uh, w one was the, a beautifully illustrated Haggadah and one was a volume of survivor stories that she herself contributed to. Uh, and of course, one was, one was None is Too Many. Uh, can I talk about the book a little bit? Yeah, please. So the, as everyone well knows, the book at its core is a powerful, uh, indictment of the Canadian government in the 30s and 40s and its moral failings uh, in the face of the Holocaust. 
But the fact that Canadian Jews have this book and cherish it is, is actually quite fascinating to me. Um, it's fascinating because it's not really a book about Jewish actors or Jewish subjects. Uh, it's focused on the on administrative inaction, even in the face of Canadian Jewish efforts to save fellow Jews to push that government to action. So here's a book that's you know a cutting moral indictment of the very Canada that Jews uh, very much cherished in the early 1980s when the book came out and have also deeply cherished and valued and contributed to uh, and are, have been proud to call home um, since, you know, since, since then. So that's, that's observation number one. If I could, I want to make another one. Uh, the second is that the book can also be read as an account of Canadian Jews, various but valorous um, but ultimately ineffectual efforts to do more, to save more Jews, um, something so that, um, uh, you know, many Canadian Jews were and continue to be deeply uncomfortable with the fact that they couldn't do more uh, in the years and decades after the war. So while the book is, is very meticulous, it's very measured, you know, it's never shrill, um, uh, the facts came to speak for themselves about government failures, um, and it had the influence that it had on liberalizing federal refugee policy in the early 80s, only because these two historians mined the archives for this sort of buried story and put um, such a good book together. Um, so the, the impacts are, of course, really significant. So what was he like outside his work as a, as a husband, as a father, and as a colleague? Well, I, I know none of, I know I, I was not married to him and was not one of his children. And in fact, I was never his colleague because I was hired at York after he retired, uh, you know, to, to basically teach, um, teach the courses that he was teaching. He sat in an endowed chair called the J. Richard Schiff Chair for the Study of Canadian Jewry. Um, and thanks to the, the generosity of the Schiff family, this, this, you know, the study of Canadian Jewry could, could be kept alive after his retirement. I'm not sure if the history department would have uh, elected to hire someone else to teach Canadian Jewish studies, but thankfully for the field, thankfully for me personally, um, I get to have uh, this career and continue on his legacy. But I, I did attend the funeral and there were very warm tributes to him as a, as a husband uh, and, uh, and as a father, and he just seemed like an extremely warm, caring person, uh, and that he was, I would say, in the academic world, he was a little bit above the day-to-day -day business of, you know, academic administration, uh, and his works were so well known, and he had so many involvement in organizations uh, beyond the York community that he was he was kind of a star, and he he spent all of his additional. Uh, sort of academic time delivering lectures and leading organizations um, outside the university orbit. So I just had one more question before uh, we wrap this up. You I, you said before that that was the only book on the topic. Is that still the case? Uh, is there anyone else that you know of? There's been a ton of research actually on Jews in the in the 30s and 40s, uh, the, both the Canadian government, the Jews, I mean, Jewish life. It's a, it's a very rich field actually. There's a, a special issue of the journal Canadian Jewish Studies devoted to kind of reappraising uh, None is Too Many and all of the other perspectives and all the other subjects um, uh, that were, you know, all parallel to this story. C can I make a couple other comments about, about the book? Because I want to talk about the impact of the book very briefly. 
Um, the most important, immediate, and very real impact that the book had uh, was, of course, on the lives and fates of the nearly 50,000 mostly Vietnamese people that were caught up in the Indochina refugee crisis of 78, 79, who were allowed to rebuild their lives in Canada, uh, partly influenced by none is too many. Uh, and of course, that impact ripples through the lives of tens or even hundreds of thousands of their, of their descendants. This is the great positive um, fallout of all these humans and their families and communities. There's something like 300,000 of the so-called boat people refugees drowned, and who knows what the fates of these people would have been had they not um, settled in Canada. Had these two Jewish historians not had the courage and frankly the kind of Canadian confidence to point a sharp finger at their own government. Um, so if we're thinking about impact, uh, the reception of the book offers this really surprising and important story about the connections between different sorts of conflicts, different sorts of influence, different sorts of people. It's a very Canadian story uh, and a good, a good history lesson. And then there's maybe a slightly less important um, in terms of impact, but an impact nonetheless worth mentioning that has to do with the emotional meaning that the book brought to Canada's intellectual and political elite, which was basically a feeling of shame. Um, and interestingly, I think the, the book simultaneously captured something of that same shame, that same feeling that eats away at Canadian Jewry for having not having done more, not having had more influence or more power to save more Jews during the war. So this is quite deep and it's pretty sad. The legacy is, is actually tremendous. Uh, none is too many has been assigned in countless Canadian history undergraduate and graduate courses across the country for going on, you know, four decades now. So I don't think there's a comparable book, comparable book in Canadian history. So if we're interesting, interested in thinking about the impact of his work, uh, one place we can point is to virtually every professional historian of Canada who has now taught over the last two intellectual generations and the hundreds, if not thousands, of students um, who were brought into relationship with Jewish studies uh, through Abella and Troper's work um, and onto their, of course, their other careers and influence. Um, there was also, I know, in addition to the uh, sequel of the book that was the actual change in liberal liberalizing refugee policy, another amazing sequel was Abella's sequel book, his sequel, sequel Canadian Jewish Studies book, which is A Code of Many Colors from 1990. Um, which came out right before Abella served as president of the same Congress that he wrote about in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, this book, A Code of Many Colors, is brimming with pride. Um, it's um, perhaps a kind of emotional counterpoint to the shame that's nestled in None is Too Many, uh, a pride that all the community accomplished. Um, and in this respect, Abella himself was also an actor in this drama because he took such a strong leadership role in so many Canadian uh, and Jewish organizations. Um, he helped establish the field as a professional bona fide field. The number of people researching and publishing and writing um, about Canadian Jewish life um, uh, since it hit he and his first generation of professional scholars has really uh, blossomed. It's not a massive field, but it's, it's definitely blossomed. And his work has also inspired uh, a great deal of attention and sort of sustained focus on uh, Canada during the 30s and 40s, um, a, a really kind of critical time that many people have spent uh, an enormous amount of archival and research efforts uh, developing. But I'd say since then, 
um, the moving forward in time to focus on real post-war stuff on the 50s and the 60s and even the 70s and 80s and contemporary Jewish life is now a much more robust area and a still growing area of Canadian Jewish studies that's less focused on the World War II period. So that's the kind of outgrowth um, of, of his work. Thank you so much for sharing with us today, David Kaufman, and we hope to have you again maybe three more times uh, with all your expertise in many different areas. It would be great, great to be back. Now it's time in our show for our Nachas of the Week, that thing that makes us uh, feel good, gave us some good uh, vibes over the past week. Alana, what's your Nachas this week? So mine is Jewish and Canadian. Uh, Alan Arkin, I found out, lives part-time in Nova Scotia. Uh, And he just recorded his role for the new Minions movie where he plays uh, Wild Duckles, which is the villain of the movie. Um, entirely in Canada. Is this that new movie where they all dress, all the kids are dressing up in suits? Have you heard about this thing? No, to show up? Have you heard about this, Davis? Yeah, absolutely, and they're shutting down theaters across the U.S. Finish yours, and then David will fill in the whole that, thing. I don't know. <laughs> but anyhow, um, so he lives part-time in Cape Breton and um, recorded his entire role out of Nova Scotia, um, even though that the production uh, was in Hollywood, the rest of it. So... Uh, a Jewish actor representing in Canada, and uh, it's a great movie that you can take your kids to. So there's a little nugget of, of information that you can go in with. You you feel connected because you're now Canadian voice actor with like share that with Alan Arkin. Yeah, Is that yeah, it? yeah. exactly. We're deeply okay. bonded. Dave, what's I heard a bit about this suits thing. What's going on with that? Do you know? Like, I'm I'm not entirely clear too because I don't think anyone really is entirely clear. But a bunch of young men are dressing up in their suits to go attend these movies, and I think that's sending a lot of panic for some reason to a lot of the cinemas where they've even had to so shut down some of the showings. It feels like like oh no they're they're scared just like in the fifties where they said oh no the teens are are embracing satanicness through rock and roll it doesn't make a lot of sense to me put me down as a believer in anything that can get kids to dress up in suits right I'm a suit guy right you gotta you are you are indeed you know I don't know it's dressing up put on a jacket and tie it's all big deal um, yeah. David, what's your Nachas of the Week? Since we're talking about philanthropy and giving back, I, I just want to thank Julie Weinberg Connors. They, they've worked for five years as the head of the program Achvat Amim, based in Jerusalem. They are leaving their position to move uh, to the U.S. And uh, I want to give a welcome to their new fearless leader, Ellie Osterdorf, who is taking over in August. If anyone is looking for a philanthropic organization to support with your future pledges, check out Achvat Amim and see all the good work that they do on the ground in Jerusalem. Um, I'm going to talk about something. I mean, I guess the Canadian connection to this is that it's uh, it started with my kids' school. My kids uh, had um, my kids' school does an annual seum where they like to study all of the Mishnah um, by all the parent body and, and some of the students or whoever whoever wants to sign up um, signs up. And I signed up for a tractate of Mishnah, and I I picked like one that I would have never otherwise just to challenge myself to sort of go into it and say I picked Mishnah Kelim which is dealing literally it means uh, dishes right vessels and it's really 
on its surface arcane and about whether certain vessels can like acquire a state of impurity and what is the nature of that state of impurity and how it transmits to other you know items other vessels and things like that and i think people see it as incredibly boring and completely useless for current day society and while we do not necessarily deal with the uh, arcaneness of uh, impurity and ritual impurity and death impurities um, today um, all of a sudden I had this moment about six or seven chapters because it's also incredibly long like most tractates are four to eight chapters and this one is 30 Um, and as all of a sudden something clicked in me I was like oh I'm looking at all of the objects in somebody's house in the time of the mission about 2000 years ago, right? And it was just like an industrial designer's dream to be able to like get these detailed descriptions of this oven or Mm. this pot with that kind of lip and that kind of thing and what it's used for and a tripod to go over an oven that will hold a pot. And, And what is that about? And what does a chair look like? And you know, if I took it in that lens from a design perspective, um, it was unbelievable. And I really have been like, I finished that uh, recently this week. And I was like, wow, right. And that was really uh, a great moment for me where I took something uh, and applied a different lens to it in Jewish learning. And it really opened up for me uh, that. So if there are any uh, product designers, industrial designers out there uh, that listen to Bonjour Chai, uh, I'd love to have a chat and look at some of these products and sort of like, hey, maybe we can sketch these things out or come up with uh, a visual missile of uh, of Jewish life from 2,000 years ago based on not just on archaeology but on the descriptions in the Mishnah. Um, so I found that really fascinating and that has been um, a good nachas for me this week. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week of July 8th, Shabbat Parashat Chukat. Our producer is Michael Freeman, technical production by Andre Goulet. Our music is by So-Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at the cjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai so they can hear what we're all about and join the Frozen Chosen. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. Bonjour.